I invite you to join me in Colossians chapter 3. We'll be reading and studying verses 5 through 10. As we prepare to go to this text, uh, would you bow with me? Father, you know how much I need you. <laughs> you know you know how much I need you to help me understand and to communicate this text. But Father, we all need you. We ask that you would give us understanding, that you would give us the grace of transformation, that you would you would give us the grace of knowing that who we are is who we are in Christ. Do this, we pray, in his name. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've just been talking about money, and, uh, and you know they say that the best way to know what a person worships is to, is to look at their checkbook. Some of us don't even know what a checkbook is, but so uh, maybe the best way to see what we worship is to look at our spending patterns. Uh, we spend money on what is important to us. And that tells us something, but is that a true indicator of our identity? Is it who we really are? Well, it at least gives us an idea of what we're actively pursuing, and on some level our actions are indicators of our heart affection, and that ought to get our attention. But the message today seems to move in the opposite direction. Not what we do as an indicator of our true identity, but rather our true identity as a driver for what we do. Speaking with the elders before, and, and in essence it tells us that our identity is relationally defined rather than activity defined. This text is inextricably linked with the four verses that preceded it. We said it last week, that these 17 verses all unpack for us our union in Christ. And what it tells us is that if you are Christian, then your true identity is in Christ. In Christ, you died. In Christ, you rose again your identity is in Christ, and so therefore live it out. Be who you are in Christ. Now, Paul will talk about that and, and unpack it for us using a, a series of, of three imperatives. 
we'll follow those in the outline of our sermon. But all three of those imperatives are essentially telling us to be who we are in Christ. The first one tells us to do so by putting to death the old. There is, uh, there is a particular incident from my childhood that is etched in my memory. <laughs> I suppose I was seven or eight, and I was gathered with the, the usual Saturday morning cast of characters. It was my grandfather, my dad, my uncle, and my brother and I. We were at the barn cleaning it out. And that particular Saturday morning, we were throwing out some old feed bags. And as we were throwing out those old feed bags, we came upon a den of snakes. Well, my dad and my uncle couldn't pass up the opportunity for a little target practice. They got their guns and they finished off the snakes. As they shot and killed them, they, they took those snakes and threw them out into the into the. Uh, the I guess the yard, the uh, outside of the barn. Now, remember, I was seven or eight, which means my brother was six or seven, and, and we saw these, these dead snakes laying out on the ground, and, uh, and we just couldn't help ourselves. We, we had to pick them up just to see what they felt like. Now, maybe you know what's going to come next, but I didn't. I picked up this snake, and all of a sudden, this dead snake started moving. And if that wasn't bad enough, as it slithered through my hands, it, it came through so that my fingers came onto the chunk of meat that had been shot out from this dead snake. I threw that thing in the air, started screaming and running, because... Who knew that a dead snake still slithers around? So, my brother and I did what any young boys would do given that situation. We started picking up little rocks and throwing them at the dead snakes trying to put them out of their misery. Or maybe to put us out of our misery. Look back on... um, on those two boys throwing rocks at dead snakes trying to finish them off. And I can't help but think that it is a pretty clear illustration of what our Father is teaching us in this text. As He tells us to put to death what is earthly within us. The earthly This is the exact opposite of what he told us last week to focus on. Do you remember last week he said to seek the things that are above, to set our minds on the things that are above? The things that are above are the opposite of what is earthly and remaining in us. And in Christ, you are dead to them. Just like those snakes in the barnyard, they continue to slither around. So what are the snakes in verse 5? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's a list of five 
vices, as some would describe them. It's five sins. Now, why this particular list of sins? It's not exhaustive. It's not a, a total list of the sins that still slither around in our lives, but they are representative of the struggles that remain. This is a list that is pointed. It's a list that is targeted. And it opens with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality of all kinds. Fornication. Sexual promiscuity. Adultery. Homosexuality. These are all sins that the Bible condemns and is telling us here as Christians to put them to death. Now some of us hear that list and hear me explaining what is included in that list and and we're sitting in our seats squirming, thinking, oh no, he's calling me out. Some of us, on the other hand, are thinking to ourselves, hey, no problem. I got that. <laughs> if that's you, let's hold on for a minute. Maybe the, the Greek word for sexual immorality is one that you might recognize, porneia. In speaking to the totality of sexual sins, it would include pornography. It would include lust. You see that in this text, the Bible is putting up homosexuality and pornography. It's putting up prostitution and lust. You still feeling like you're good with this one? (laughs) Christians, every one of us, men and women, struggle here. But we may be asking the question, why is the Bible so fixated on sex? If we're not asking that question, the culture outside most certainly is. What's the big deal? Why is this list a list that is meant to be representative of all sin? Well... This issue of sexual immorality is one of the areas where the snake slithers with its most cunning pornography. It begins with desire, but a desire gone bad. It's an internal struggle of the heart that tends to work itself outward. And though this list of sin here is more of an internal uh, struggle, make no mistake, it has outward impact. Pornography is is that desire goes bad. It's one that we pursue. And as we pursue it, it grows. It sends us into dark, quiet, secret places It promises fulfillment, but never delivers. It's pornography, and I speak to pornography as a representative of all of this list, but it is one that I think we connect to very clearly. It is rampant in the world, and it is rampant in the church. I talk to groups, I've talked particularly to groups of men about the sin of pornography, and as I do, the eyes go down. The eyes go down because we know that it is a struggle that reaches us all. 
This list of sin struggles is one that we must deal with because for many of us it has taken over and it is culminated in the list here to speak of covetousness. To covet is to desire something or someone that is not yours. And the Bible tells us here that this coveting is in effect idolatry. It means to worship. It's to worship anything lesser than our great and glorious God. That is the movement that is found in verse and on account of these sins and on account of the sins these sins are representative of the wrath of God is coming wrath wrath is God's appropriate anger over sin his appropriate judgment on sin and on the sinner and that that wrath will be poured out in an eternal, physical torment for all who would seek to live life apart from Christ. And so this text, though speaking to Christians, also serves as a warning to those who are not trusting in Christ alone. That the, the sin list that is listed here and Uh, and speaks to the broader sin struggle. Our struggle with these sins is one that brings the wrath of God upon us. Be warned, all who are not trusting in Christ alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel. But it's also written here to, to Christians. And so to the Christian, this mention of God's wrath is meant to communicate to us that God is serious about sin. That sin has impact. It is an affront to the holiness of God. And it is a disease that takes out the sinner. And so the question for us is, why if we are in Christ, would we still live in it? Put it to death. These are... These are strong words by the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit calling for a strong action. So practically and pointedly, he's telling us don't handle snakes, alive or dead. So be vigilant. Be vigilant. Don't jump past this sin list thinking perhaps to yourself, I've got this. And be violent. Be violent in dealing with that remaining sin struggle. Have no tolerance for it in your life. Show it no mercy. Be violent in putting it to death. Be ruthless in seeking it out in the hidden corners of your life. This is how we become who we are in Christ. Remember, an identity that is relationally defined but actively grown into. So, that's the first imperative, but Paul goes on in verse 8 to offer a second 
But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. The first sin list, the first list of five sins, as I said, had more to do with an internal struggle. This second list that he offers here is more explicit in our relationship with others. There's a movement in it, a movement that that begins with, with anger and goes towards anger projected through our speech. This this anger projected outward through our speech has bearing on our relationships and particularly on our relationships among believers. It speaks to unity within the body. And so with that in mind, let me deal with just one example of this, the sins represented in this sin list. Slander. Let me offer another word for slander. Slander. Gossip. To gossip is to speak about others in a way that harms or injures their reputation. Now, when we hear slander, we think of public slander. We think of public speech that broadly injures or harms. But our private Speech, our private gossip, has the exact same impact. It blasphemes the name of another, and yet in private we barely think twice about it. In fact, we embrace it. We indulge in it. Our southern small town culture is known for it. And so we've grown numb. We've grown numb to how heinous it is before the Lord. We think to ourselves, sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, pornography, how dare anyone commit such vile sin? So I'll just talk about those who do. And in our talking about our gossiping, we are guilty of a sin on par with those that we condemn. In talking, we commit sins on account of which the wrath of God is coming. How dare we? How dare we? It is not who we are in Christ. It is not who we are anymore. I skipped over verse Seven. I'll pick it back up now because I believe that verse 7 deals with the sin list in verse 5 and the sin list in verse 8. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. Once walked. To, to walk is to, is to actively engage in these sins. It's to actively commit these sins. But then he says, when you were living in them. If to, if to walk is to actively commit these sins, living in them speaks to our nature. Our essence. When you were living in them points out that we were born with a sin nature. All of us have a nature. 
All of us have an essence that we live out of, an essence that we actively walk in. And we have one of two natures. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. To be in Adam, it's our, it's our birth nature. That is the earthly nature. That's the sin nature. The Bible would talk about this nature as the fleshly nature. We're either in Adam, living in Adam and actively walking in the Adamic nature, or we are in Christ. We have been born again. We have experienced the gracious gift of new birth by which we have been transformed. That old nature has been put to death and we have been given the new nature of Christ. The nature that is associated with the heavenly thing. Friends, all of us, as the text says, actively walked in the sins of the old nature when we were in Adam. And for the Christian, that simple fact ought to kill within us any boastfulness. It ought to drive within us a a humility. Yeah. It ought to kill any superiority that we feel over the non-Christian because in Adam we committed the exact same sins. Let there be no sense of Christian superiority. All of us actively walked in the sins of the old nature. And if by grace the Spirit of God has reached in and removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh, if we have been given the nature of Christ through new birth rejoice rejoice and live in this new nature walk in it but Paul is telling us throughout that for Christians who now are in Christ the old struggle remains it's not you anymore though it's not your identity it is not your essence. So put it away. Put anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Put them all away. Put gossip away with the same vigilance and violence and ruthlessness that you put away pornography. And with that, we come to Paul's third imperative. Do not lie to one another. That's what we find in verse 9. It seems obvious, I know. Of course, don't lie. It's It's a short, punchy admonition included here and and I'll be honest with you, I've I've wrestled with this admonition because it seems so simple, it's as if why would it be included here? What what do I really preach about on this other than to say don't lie? Well, I've wrestled with that and, and I'd like to offer two thoughts for you. One is I believe this this admonition, do not lie to one another, is a is a bridge to where we are going. It bridges the gap between verse 8 
in verse 11. I've decided to carve out verse 11 and spend our next time there because I believe in this cultural moment we need the reminder of our unity within the body as an outflowing of our union in Christ. And this admonition, do not lie to one another, seems to be a bridge from putting to death the old to this call to unity within the body. It's where we're going. So, if you are in Christ, do not lie within the body. But second... I've come to believe that this admonition, do not lie to one another, seems to bring together the whole. It is most certainly connected to putting away the old, but also to putting to death the old. To do both, to put to death the old sin struggles, to put away the old sin struggles, we must, as we say in our vision statement, embrace our need. Embrace our need of Jesus. Now, as Christians, we have undergone a change of nature. It is the new birth that I have just spoken about. But yet, as Christians, what we know intellectually and experientially is that we still struggle with the old sin patterns, every one of us, which is why Paul is writing to Christians telling us to put those things away. And yet, part of being ruthless And putting them away is a ruthless self-awareness. It's a call to to honesty and vulnerability with ourselves. And particularly within the body of Christ. Do you understand that the church is the one organization, institution that I am aware of where the only qualification for membership is your awareness that you are unqualified? And so why are we so tempted to put on masks? I'm not talking about COVID masks. I'm talking about happy face put together masks. Why are we so tempted to pose as if we had no sin struggles? This call, do not lie to one another, is a call to be ruthlessly honest with ourselves and, one, and with one another about our sin struggles because when we are open and honest about those struggles, they no longer have power over us. Why do you think pornography is such a particularly uh, deadly sin struggle? Why is it so addictive? Because it forces us into hiding. It forces us into the secret places. Why is gossip so enticing? Because it allows us to find connection with another, again, in secret. Friends, Paul is calling us to live publicly. To let go of the darkness of hiding. To let go of the darkness of secrecy. Because we are in Christ. 
We share in the knowledge that we all are sinners, but by grace we have been saved through faith alone in Christ alone. And that gives us a freedom to acknowledge who we were and what we still struggle with because our identity is no longer defined by them, but by Him who loved us and gave Himself up for us. Amen, friends. This call to abandon lying is a call to abandon the self-focus of hiding. Lying divides. Christ unites. So in Christ, the old self has been put off. The text speaks to that here in verse 9 in the past tense. So in Christ, the new self has been put on, again, in the past tense. And so now in the present, we're called to embrace who we are in Christ. By living a life of being renewed. Being renewed in the knowledge of our Creator. Being renewed after, in knowledge after the image of of our Creator. It is, a, it is a life, a present tense life of growing in Christ-likeness because He put to death the old self. He has given us the new self. So friends, day by day, be who you are in Christ. Anything less, just, it just doesn't make sense. Now that sounds simple. Sounds neat and tidy. Walk in your nature. Stop acting out of the old. Be who you are. Simple and clean. Or so it seems. But in the fight against sin, every one of us in this room knows better. Some of us are in the fight now. And we feel powerless to bring about the change that the Bible is calling us to make. And that just takes me back to the picture of my eight-year-old self. Again, it's like an out-of-body experience as I look down on, on these two little boys throwing little gravel rocks all at a safe distance trying to kill snakes that are already dead. We weren't sure we wanted to get very close. Our aim wasn't that great, and let's be honest with it, there's not that much force behind our throws to begin with. In other words, the picture is cute, but it's ineffective. Maybe you feel the same. Maybe you want the snake to die, but you're afraid to get too close to it. Maybe you want the snake to die, but you feel powerless to make it happen. Maybe you want the snake to die, but you know you need something more than a little gravel rock in your hand. And friends, if that is you, I want you to look up at me. I want to take you back to the power source. Because Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, crushed the head of the serpent. On the cross, He died bearing the full wrath of God. And in Christ, we died to that wrath. We died to the power of sin. 
Though Satan may still slither about, he has no power to accuse the beloved of God. He has no power to define the beloved of God. Only Jesus has that power and he exercised it on the cross. So friends, keep throwing rocks. Keep throwing them with all you've got. But as you throw them, keep being renewed in the knowledge of your Creator. Knowing that He is the one who defines your essence. He is your life. Be who you are in Him. Father, this word catches us It catches us in the midst of our struggle. And I pray, Father, that your spirit, by the power of your spirit, this word would offer hope. That in the admonition, we would find the hope to know that the work has been done. It is complete in Christ. Strengthen us in that knowledge. Strengthen us in the fight. Do this, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen.